find out more. Sponsored by the Minnesota Army National Guard and aired by the Minnesota Broadcasters Association and this station. National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you join us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and even from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Our topic for today will be the intersection of women and national security. In this case, we'll be learning about the role of women in conflict zones and also more broadly about women, peace, and security studies. Our guest today is Dr. Joan Johnson-Fries, who is a senior fellow with Women in International Security, and she served as a university professor and chair of the National Security Affairs Department at the Naval War College between 2002 and 2022. As a political scientist, she has published multiple articles on aspects of women, peace, and security, particularly focusing on raising awareness regarding the framework generally and within security communities specifically. She often provides webinar presentations introducing audiences to the Women, Peace, and Security Framework and is the author of Women, Peace, and Security, an Introduction, which came out in 2018, and Women versus Women, the Case for Cooperation in 2022. Over the arc of her academic career, her research also focused on space security, authoring seven books in that field and over 100 published articles, many with a particular focus on the Chinese space pro program. She has testified before Congress on multiple occasions about space issues and served on the National Academy of Sciences Space Studies Board. Dr. Johnson Fries has also published multiple articles and written a book, Educating America's Military, on what's called Professional Military Education, or PME. She actually testified before a Congressional House Armed Services Subcommittee on PME Reform in May 2022, including discussion of the need for inclusion of women, peace, and security in professional military education curricula. Dr. Joan Johnson-Fries, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you for having me, John. So I should highlight to our listeners that, that when I was at the Naval War College, you were the department chair. <laughs> I was. I was uh, very proud to say the first woman department chair. That was way back in uh, 2003, 2004 when I was there. Uh, we have a lot I want to cover today. I, I, I've, I know I've given you a list of questions that I want to make sure we, we cover. The first thing I want to ask you, though, is what exactly is Women in International Security? Could you tell our listeners about that organization? Sure, and thanks for asking. Um, WISE, as it's known, is an international professional development network that's been around for about 35 years with members in 50 countries. It's committing, uh, committed to achieving gender equality and uh, works in that regard through publications and conducting training, convening policy forums. We're trying to bridge the gap between gender and today's critical security issues. Okay. And uh, Dr. Johnson-Fries, you're now Professor Emeritus, having recently left the U.S. Naval War College, where you served as a professor and department chair in the National Security Affairs Department. Uh, in my introduction, I, I mentioned the term PME, or professional military education. I think if we started this conversation off today, maybe you could explain what professional military education is, uh, how it's used in the military, why it matters, and, and how, how that graduate education is delivered to officers across the military services. Oh, I'm happy to do that. I spent uh, nearly 30 years committed to it, so <laughs> I, I, I think it's pretty important. In 1986, Congress passed uh, the Goldwater-Nichols Act 
which basically mandated education um, for enlisted and military uh, officers in the military. I worked primarily in um, with the officers. And it was prompted by a need to have um, the different services learn to work together better, to fight together, jointness as it's termed. Um, over the years, it's evolved. It's evolved further to include things like interagency, uh, the need to recognize the impact of irregular warfare. And now we're back to geopolitical um, great power competition as the kind of focus within PME. But it at the higher levels, at the, for the officers, there's joint professional military education one and two, one focusing on the more junior officers, um, focused on the idea that they're they're all very good at what they do in their in their careers, whether it's fly planes, drive ships, infantry, whatever. Um, but they need to have a kind of a bigger picture of operational warfare. So at the junior level, we focus on operational warfare. And then at the senior level, it focuses on strategic um, considerations. And I, I used to start my, my classes, my PME classes by trying to tell these individuals, many of them who weren't sure, what am I doing here? What am I gonna get out of this? Um, why they needed to, to be there, what the importance was. And I would say, you know, down the road in Cambridge or in Washington, DC, there are lots of people in lots of, of very bright individuals, wicked smart people <laughs> in graduate programs um, that you're gonna be sitting next to at some point, whether it's at a decision-making table or behind your boss. And when somebody next to you starts starts talking in language about Jacksonian realists or that neoliberal stuff, you have to know what they're talking about because otherwise you're gonna be left out of the conversation. And things don't go well for the United States when the military is left out of those important discussions. So it's very important to do and, um, but there are issues. I'm, I'm often known for talking about the issues. And those issues, I think, stem from the fact that the military is very good at training. Nobody's better at training than the military. But they very often don't recognize or acknowledge the difference between training and education. Sure. And that creates issues regarding what to teach, who should teach it, and how to teach it. And um, those are ongoing issues. I think some of them are being addressed. Um, I think there's still, I think we can always do things better. Sure. Uh, there are lots of stories of people, you know, being sent in to, uh, as lieutenant commanders or majors in the military, to JPME phase one, Joint Professional, professional Military Education phase one, and then they go. They get this great education. They get a master's degree out of it. They go off to do some assignment that has absolutely nothing to do with the training they've just been through, the education they've been through. Uh, and I think the same thing yeah. happens for at the senior officer level. They might send somebody who's getting ready to retire uh, for phase two. Yeah. Uh, what's the What's the purpose of that? Right. <laughs> well, um, we we kind of worked on that issue of there should not be a last assignment. You, there should be some kind of payback, but. It's also an issue. Some services value education more yeah. than others. Um, uh, I'm often told the Navy saying any day you're not at sea is a wasted day. Uh, <laughs> so 
there there's different levels of um, attention paid to education, value placed on education. So there are again, there's challenges, but the the value back, I think, is is worth continued consideration of the challenges. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you focus much of your academic research on the topic of space security. At what point in your time at the Naval War College did you start to realize the vital nature of space control and, and really space dominance and, and start to focus in and study that topic? Well, it's interesting you use the terms both space control and space dominance, um, words that I spent a large portion of my career trying to get the U.S. to move away from. Um, I started working on space issues uh, when I was still at the University of Central Florida as a very young uh, assistant professor. And then I went to the Air War College and really started working on um, military space issues there. And um, I started moving away from it probably in about 2010 because I felt like I was beating my head against the wall. Frankly, it was frustration. I felt for a very long time and still feel, though I've again moved out of the field, uh, pretty much, that um, we are focused on one question and one answer to all space security related questions. And the question is always, how do we win a space war? And the answer is always technology. And while that's a very important question, it's not the only question. Um, we ought to be talking about how do we avoid a space war? But um, it's always, how do we win? How do we win? We win through more technologies. And that ignores things like the, the, the closest um, space threat is space debris, yeah. which is inherently a international issue. We can't, one country can't solve it on their own. And uh, we can't do it in ways that blows things up and creates more degree, debris. So we are ignoring uh, the the word space diplomacy is just absolutely shunned by the military. And um, I don't think that's going to serve us well. The United States cannot afford a space policy that is basically do as we say, not as we do. Okay. So I got frustrated and it, my frustration occurred much the same time as I discovered women, peace, and security, and kind of transitioned from one field to the other. Okay. Well, that's a great segue into, uh, into the core topic that I invited you on to talk about today. Uh, I introduced you at the beginning of the show as an expert uh, to discuss this vital role of, that women play in conflict uh, zones, uh, which is often studied through this framework of peace and security studies. Uh, th this topic, the role of women in peace and security studies, it, it's pretty relevant, frankly, to the, to the U.S. military. I know in the special operations community, uh, it became a vital part of how they were functioning in combat zones uh, for counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations. It's become vital uh, across the military. It's it's kind of vital across the U.S. intelligence community, all 18 members, and even for U.S. policymakers at this point. Uh, this epiphany that you had about the role of women in conflict, conflict zones or, or preventing conflict in the first place— uh, the study, I mean, was there anything in this area when you first started looking at it, or was it really just kind of a, a blank area that you could do anything you wanted in the studies of women, peace, and security? Um, women, peace, and security is, is based on United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325, which was passed in 2000. 
So it has been around for 23 years. Uh, what that basically, what UNSCR 1325 says, it, it's the first framework to acknowledge that women are active agents of security, not just victims or bystanders. And it's like, like most government um, frameworks, it comes with pillars or lines of effort. And the pillars for women, peace and security are participation, protection, and that's basically protection against gender-based violence, prevention, relief, and recovery. And I, I can talk about the pillars individually, but I kind of, for my students, boil them down to what it's actually striving for is two things. The first is inclusive diversity. Inclusive diversity means demographic diversity where it's not just people at the table, it's voices at the table. Uh, including women and minorities to get different information, different perspectives, different ways of communicating, being additive, adding to discussions. And gendered perspectives recognizes that policies and programs um, influence men, women, boys, and girls differently. And the, the examples I give, um, more women die in car accidents than men. And it's not because we are worse drivers. It's because the crash dummies around which safety features are built are built to dummies that are structured on men's physiques. Mm. And a, a dummy that is six feet tall and weighs 200 pounds is not going to yield the same results for 110 pound, five foot three woman. So that's kind of how, how very simple things like that. If you take it to an international level, uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization out of Rome has suggested that if food aid were give, were distributed differently, not asking for more, just the same aid distributed differently according to who works the land rather than who owns the land, because more men than women own the land, uh, we could probably increase food production to the extent that there would be 100 to 150 million less hungry people globally. So consideration of, of gendered perspectives in policy and plans and getting more options for policy, more voices um, heard at the table is what women, peace, and security is all about. That makes really good sense. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Joan johnson Fries, and we're discussing the critical role women play in conflict zones. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. They have monthly webinars, and if you can learn more about the upcoming webinar in March, uh, if you go to their website. Uh, so, Dr. johnson Fries, uh, you've co-authored a, a significant number of excellent articles on this topic of uh, women, peace, and security. Uh, some of the most hard-hitting papers, in, in my personal opinion, are, are, are the ones you've published uh, in the last few years. But before we get into those specific papers, I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, this topic uh, against some of the conflict zones that we have around the world today. Sort of, uh, These conflict zones have helped open the eyes of U.S. military leaders and policymakers about the critical role that women play in societies around the world. Between September 11, 2001 and the collapse of the government in Afghanistan, the U.S. and our allies were deeply engaged against a global Salafist uh, jihadi movement. Uh, that, that fight continues, but it's certainly not the core focus of a lot of our military operations and intelligence efforts. That has shifted over to, to bigger uh, power competition, but the, the role women played in that, that fight really 
helped educate us, I think, on, on the critical nature of that. What did we learn from the global counterinsurgency effort with regard to the role women play in both insurgency and counterinsurgency? Well, if you'll permit, I'm going to back up a little Please bit do. and Please, say yeah, absolutely. Yeah, women's peace and security um, has internal components and external components. Um, it's we can't again, it's we can't have a policy of do as we say, not as we do. So the internal component is inclusive diversity and gendered perspectives within our own organizations. Um, the Women, Peace and Security framework from the United Nations, it was left to individual nations to implement for implementation. Those are through national action plans. But uh, in addition to those national action plans, the United States in 2017 became the first country in the world to have a Women, Peace and Security Act. So it is legislatively mandated that we implement this framework. And again, I came into it in about 2010, 2011. I'm a woman working in, in international and national security. I had no idea. Um, a vast portion still of our security practitioners are unaware of the framework and why it's necessary. And um, a lot of times I think that was because people would say, well, I would talk about it and people would say, oh, Joan, that's just your opinion. No, no, it's not. This is based on empirical data. We know if a nation scores high on gender inequality, it's more than twice as likely to be a fragile state, more than three times as likely to have an autocratic, less effective and more corrupt government, and more than one and a half times the chance that the country will be violent and unstable. So this is all this background. And then there we are in Afghanistan um where you have a where you have a uh, a culture which women and men are not allowed to talk to each other outside of families and our military was there women know things women have daily life experiences different than men the experience I, or the the example i always use to illustrate women know different things um was for a, a peace negotiations in Sudan and the men were spending days arguing over a, ri a riverbed who was going to get this river and women who were in the room just pouring water said you might help you to know that river dried up a long time ago <laughs> so women have different experiences um in Afghanistan the military knew these women knew things but they couldn't talk to them so our military uh trained highly trained, brought in highly trained female engagement teams. And these were women in the military who would be attached to often special operations forces that would go into the villages and the women were specifically assigned to do things like talk to the women, find out where those weapon caches were held, which, which house they were in, what guy they were looking for. So they proved highly effective in that regard. They also proved effective in doing things like searching women. Um, a very high percentage of terrorist attacks are carried out by women because women don't get searched. Um, so having women there who could search other women, they played different roles in these kind of um, operational environments that we have that have been shown to be highly effective 
but in other ways as well. It was mostly women in Alex Station, the intelligence team that was uh, tasked to find Osama bin Laden. So there are many different roles that women play actively in the military uh, that are additive. Um, we always talk about gender equality is not a pie. It's not if women get more, men get less. It, women are additive to discussions, decision-making processes, and operations. I have a friend of mine who lives here in uh, in Northfield. Uh, her, uh, she is a Army veteran, Army Intel officer veteran. Uh, she actually deployed with the 5th Special Forces Group up into northern Syria near the Manbij area uh, during that uh, that fight against the, the Islamic State. And I actually just had her in my class yesterday for the terrorism and counterterrorism course talking about the counterterrorism counterinsurgency operations that they were doing in partnership uh, with the the Syrian Defense Forces, the, the Kurdish uh, militia groups, uh, and the fact that there were Kurdish women and uh, even Arab women who came in to train with the U.S. Army Special Forces uh, folks to learn how to defend themselves after the experience that they had gone through in living under uh, the tyranny of the Islamic State. Fascinating yeah, discussion. Sometimes it's just a matter of giving women permission to scream. Yeah. Uh, it, they are so oppressed and suppressed very often that just giving them a voice is a first step. Yeah. And the Kurds are unique in that they actually uh, have been pretty uh, equal, a lot, of, a lot of equity between men and women in their society. They actually had female combat units that were fighting against the Islamic State in northern Syria uh, I don't know where that stands today. It was certainly something that we were watching and participating in as supporters of that uh, in the special forces uh, back in that mid-2015, uh, 2016, 2017 time frame. There are also all-female peacekeeping units um, that have been in places like uh, Liberia, for example. It was an entire unit from India that served in Liberia because it was, um, and they were playing not just not just talk to the women roles, but they were they were on patrols. And um, the population there that had been so terrorized for so long felt much safer having having women doing the, uh, the basically the police work. Yeah. So, yes, there is there are many ways that women contribute to security. And what I think we just need to do is recognize them and begin to. Uh, follow our own policy. We're very good. We do a lot of uh, outstanding work abroad and through the through the, the geographic commands. But there's also been a lot of work lately. Um, individuals, Melissa Deering and uh, Valerie Hudson and Brenda Operman have all done work saying, why didn't we pay attention to our own um, indicators in Afghanistan? They would have told us what was going to happen. Um, so we need to we need to kind of incorporate it in. We need to mainstream women, peace, and security into operations. But that goes back to PME. Right. You can't implement what you don't know about. Right. <laughs> and you know, PME, uh, it, women, peace, and security, is not part of the core curriculum in PME. Uh, has not been. It's being very slowly kind of filtered in. But I talked to a student yesterday who said, we get we get a sentence or two here and a sentence or two there. And 
quite frankly, we're not getting we're not getting the dots connected. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to do a much better job at incorporating women, peace and security into our uh, our whole PME structure. Well, you mentioned the the theater combatant commands, and uh, Central Command is the one that's been sort of heavily focused on this issue. They've recognized the value of having these female engagement teams and uh, and engaging with the female population. Uh, U.S. Uh, Naval Forces in Central Cam Command, also known as NAV Sent, uh, just held a uh, a conference, a symposium on January twenty third, uh, called the uh, Women Peace and Security Symposium in Kenya, uh, and uh, the commander of uh, of uh, Central of uh, Navsent, U.S. Fifth Fleet Admiral Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, uh, was a part of that. But there was a significant number of other senior female leaders uh, from. Uh, uh, let's see, it was uh, Bahrain, Jordan, Kenya, Qatar, and the United States. So uh, a pretty significant group of folks focused on this issue of peace and security in the region. Yeah, uh, CENTCOM and Indo-PACOM have really. Uh, stepped up their their game, their emphasis on women, peace, and security. AFRICOM and SOUTHCOM have for many years been doing training programs, education programs, just enlightenment programs toward getting more women into their militaries and into their security decision-making. And um, I, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that it's expanding. I think um, NATO has done a very good job understanding that we can always do better. But NATO has done a very good job of incorporating women, peace and security into their educational curriculum. And therefore it's made it easier to mainstream it into their operations. And I think now we are, uh, again, catching up to understanding the value that that brings us. And I do want to follow up on the uh, on the NATO aspect here in just a second. Uh, Dr. johnson Fries, we have to take just a short uh, break uh, to identify our uh, our sponsor for the show, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back in about 45 seconds. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here at National Security This Week, and our guest is Dr. Joan Johnson-Fries. Uh, Dr. Johnson-Fries, I'd like to pick up uh, pick out a couple of the articles you've co-authored and dive into those a bit. And the first one is how the Pentagon can build on NATO's success with women, peace, and security. Uh, you co-authored that with uh, Andrea Goldstein back in uh, 2019. America's NATO allies played a major role, not just in Afghanistan, but in other conflict zones in support of the global counterinsurgency fight against uh, Salafist jihadism. The NATO alliance members uh, learned together about this important topic, frankly. Uh, this paper with Andrea Goldstein, what was the catalyst for the two of you to write it? And can you summarize the findings uh, that you that you came up with for that paper? Yeah, uh, Andrea had served as a gender advisor and in NATO. And it's important to point out that uh, part of implementation of the Women, Peace and Security Act in the United States fell to four agencies, DOD, State, USAID, and um, Department of Homeland Security. And the way that that has been done is through uh, what are called gender advisors and gender focal points. These are individuals who are charged with 
um, making sure that inclusive diversity and gendered perspectives are considered in operations. They, many of them have been hardworking, um, eager advocates, but their advocacy can only go so far as number one, the leadership is interested and number two, their own personal training and interest. And very often, sadly, initially, gen ads and gender focal points were kind of uh, add-on duties for people or part-time and contractors and really didn't have either the the rank position or the influence to to um, make, a, make a difference. Um, that was also true in NATO, but to a lesser extent. And I think that the gender advisors, Andrea, having had experience with that, we decided it was, uh, if we kind of pointed out what NATO had done right, we might spur more of that in the United States. And there, there has certainly been an improvement, but one of the things you need for, um, again, for, for more mainstreaming is a budget. The budget for women, peace, and security has been um, about eight million dollars, which is not a whole lot of money. Um, you know, that's kind of coffee money, and uh, we need more training for these gen ads and for the gender focal points, and we need again leadership buy-in. So, what we did with the article is tried to say, look, we have we have lessons learned, and we need to pay attention to them. Um, I think we were successful because we got a lot of um, a lot of lot of pushback from the Pentagon. That's saying, perfect. No, no, that's perfect. <laughs> you know, you're doing uh, the right thing when you get pushback. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so that was kind of the the impetus for that. And we tried to do things. We have found very often uh, we run up against convince me attitudes. You know, the as I said, the well, Joan, that's just your opinion. So we try to use statistics to point out one of the one of the statistics that's very often used and I think is very impactful is that when women are included in peace negotiations, when they are sitting at the table, there's a 20% increase in the probability of that agreement lasting at least two years and a 35% increase that it will last 15 years. So we try to put write articles and put these statistics in to convince the skeptics. So we 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 in the military always use this sort of that lessons learned uh, framework uh, from from a, a training exercise or a combat engagement. Uh, we try to apply those for the future. So it's kind of an iterative process in the military. Uh, what, what were some of the the things that you when you studied what NATO has done broadly with this issue? Were there any countries that really were remarkably successful in this area that uh, you and Andrea Goldstein spotted as you're doing your research? Well, of course, when you're dealing with issues of gender equality, you can always look to the Scandinavian countries. Um, and it was the Scandinavian countries that had set up educational programs, training programs. And of course, in the military, it's difficult to get people for a week let alone a two, three month long training program. And this is women, peace and security is a huge field. Yeah. It's international relations, nationals, policy, security studies, psychology, sociology. It's all of that. Um, 
But what I emphasize to my classes and in my books and in articles over and over again, it is a security program. It is not a gender studies program. Right. <laughs> it's not a social justice program of be nice to the ladies because that's what you should do. It is for the benefit of national security, uh, national stability. And I think the the Swedish country or the, the Scandinavian country, excuse me, had already kind of had the data that could be then pushed into NATO um, that that kind of won over the skeptics early. So I think that was one of what we tried to to take and then pull over and and use that as the lessons learned for the U.S. So I would I would imagine that you're probably a strong advocate for bringing Sweden and and Finland into NATO. <laughs> well, um, at least some of their some of their gender equality uh, programs. Fair enough. Another car article that caught my attention was uh, how women, peace, and security gives the U.S. and Aus- and Australia an edge in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, with it, is it Jackie True? Is that how you say Jackie True? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, what happened there, John, is uh, we were women, peace, and security was just starting to get some buy-in, you know, Pentagon buy-in, and the kind of insurgency, irregular warfare, counterterrorism was left behind in favor of large, not entirely, but left behind uh, in favor of geopolitical uh, great power competition kind of politics. And the idea of, well, women, peace and security was relevant before, but it's not relevant now. Women, peace and security isn't relevant in, in great power competition. And Jackie True, who is an Australian um, academic and very much an advocate of women, peace and security, we started talking and um, basically wanted to point out that great power competition, and we this was from reading an article, which um, I forget where it was published, that basically had said that great power competition was like, um, was like baseball, major league baseball, that the teams, it's not like one team is really, really good and all the other teams are kind of mediocre. It's it's that lots of teams are really, really good. And one team will have an edge. And that will make them predominate. That will make them dominate. And that politics today is, is inter, international relations is much like that. It's not that the United States has this domineering technological or military edge anymore. It's that there has we have reached a certain parity with other countries. And therefore we have to look for what will give us a competitive edge. And in that piece, we argue that it's taking advantage of gender equality in our countries that is not available in countries like China or in Russia, Um, that they are very patriarchal. There are still lots of jobs where women are not allowed that they are not allowed at decision-making tables. Um, and we need to, to exploit that advantage that we have over them in our inclusiveness. So we, we wanted to make the point that gender equality can give us this competitive edge and therefore is relevant in great power competition. Yeah, that that partnership uh, that the United States has with Australia 
uh, is vitally important uh, as we look at uh, a rising China. Uh, our other partnerships that we have, obviously, with uh, with South Korea and Japan and many other nations in, in the uh, Pacific uh, theater and, and, and the Indian Ocean as well, also vital. Uh, you, you raise China and Russia uh, being very patriarchal societies. There's a fantastic article uh, on the website War on the Rocks that was published back in November of last year. The title is Why Dictators Are Afraid of Girls, Rethinking Gender and National Security. And it's a fantastic article on this whole topic of uh, how important it is for us to think about an entire society, all the different aspects of society, and why uh, considering all these different aspects is part of creating greater stability, greater economic development, and is sort of a, a bulwark against the kinds of challenges that we have with a country like China in the Indo-Pacific theater. Uh, anything else that comes to mind as far as the theater goes, the things that you and uh, Jackie True looked at in the Indo-Pacific theater? Well, there is a lot of work being done there now. Um, I work a lot with the Pacific Forum, um, a woman named Mary Ruth Preby, who's, who's doing a lot of work on environmental studies, um, basically looking at how do we how do we raise consciousness about the role of gender equality in the region as a whole um, towards towards strengthening national security. And I'll give you an example of Japan. Yeah. I, I had the uh, I lived in Japan for a year and went back just a couple years ago um, doing presentations at different women's um, high schools and colleges with two other um, women. And it was absolutely shocking that the number of, of young girls, teenage girls who would come up to us afterwards and tell us that they were planning on leaving Japan um, in order to pursue professional careers. Japan is going to have a serious brain drain for the number of young women who plan to leave because they feel that there will be such discrimination against them in professions from medicine to science to artificial intelligence. Um, and that's gonna be a problem. That's gonna be a serious problem. Um, so I think there's that problem in Japan. South Korea is currently having a huge anti-feminist movement um, based on the, the notion that women are taking men's jobs. Um, we've, there's research that shows the loss of the jobs that the men in South Korea, and very interestingly, um, in the United States, the jobs that are being lost to men are more often being taken by automation right? and by uh, not in the mining sector. It's not women taking their jobs. It's the whole sector going away. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of education that needs to occur in Indo-PACOM and other areas um, that that is tamping down gender equality and in this edge that, that can yield from gender equality in, in national stability and global stability. We, we have studied uh, China on this show many, many times, and I guarantee you we're going to talk about China many more times as this show goes on. Uh, not not today, but you know, future iterations of the show, future uh, episodes. Uh, you brought up Japan, probably one of the more uh, patriarchal, very traditional societies. I, I was assigned there for two and a half years uh, myself in Sasebo. 
Uh, I've been in South Korea. I know that's also a fairly patriarchal society. But then you look at a country like Taiwan uh, that has been very successful uh, economically, and, and they have a female uh, president. Uh, you look at uh, New Zealand. They recently had a female prime minister, uh, Jacinda Ardern. Um, is, does it matter that a, that a society is willing to elect a, a female as their leader? Does that indicate something to you uh, as when you study this women, peace, and security? Is the country better off that way when, when both genders are engaged in the political side? Well, what studies have shown is that women are more electable in countries that don't do direct election. Ah. That when they can come through, when the, it, government structure matters. Um, when they are elected as leaders, uh, do they act differently? Some do. Jacinda Ardern certainly did. Margaret Thatcher did not. Um, so having a woman leader, there are countries where um, you can, uh, Brazil, Brazil can has elected a woman leader, but has one of the highest rates of um, of of homicide, female homicides, uh, of violence against women in the world. So you can you can be elected leader, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be gender equality. And very often, when women are elected leaders, and this is true not just at the national level, but down to the department chair at the Naval War College level, uh, when they are in a leadership position, they have to be very careful of not being accused of favoritism. Mm. So um, it's it, having a woman in power is, is more a function of um, again, government structure. And here in the United States, when, it, when it's direct ele election, um, it, it, it subjects women to political attack. And there's I mean, we have a horrific level of of violence against women politicians um, globally and in the United States. So I think that that's a factor as well. That is that is sadly uh, very true. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Joan Johnson-Fries, and we're discussing the critical role women play in conflict zones. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Dr. Johnson Fries, we have about uh, 17 minutes left in the show. Uh, there's plenty of time to continue to discuss some important things here. Uh, I'm a big fan of that website, War on the Rocks, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I've always found really insightful articles on that website, uh, well written, uh, and I often recommend articles to my students at, at Carleton College. And you happen to pen an article for War on the Rocks called Women, Peace, and Security Moving Implementation Forward, and that was back in July of 2021. Uh, you framed so many issues with regard to defense policy implementation in that article, covering the role of women, peace, and security, and the heavy lifting that remains to fully embrace this aspect of global security. Uh, why is gender equality so vital to securing peace around the world? Um, well, it's a big again, question. <laughs> it's a big question, I know. Again, we have there has been now empirical evidence of the link between gender equality and um, stability, national stability, between gender equality and democracy. As democracy rises, gender equality rises. As you see cutbacks or rollbacks in gender equality, you see countries slipping from full democracies to flawed democracies. Um, again, it, with 
gender equality, you see less violence, less less instability in countries. So it, it is globally important. But again, it, it takes nations to uh, make it happen. And unfortunately, there has been a big gap between, between rhetorical support for women, peace and security and actual support. And that shows up in things like budget. As I mentioned before, every year, um, the United Nations has a day when they have, it's kind of, you, you get to stand up and support women, peace and security. And every year when that happens, there is a list of usually two thirds to three quarters of the, the UN members will stand up and voice support. But even among those that have national action plans, less than 20% have actually attached a budget to it. And there is certainly an adage, if you wanna know what's really important to a country, check their budget or a country, an organization, whatever. So we need to put more money into it. We need to um, make sure that individuals, uh, that again, perception, my, I am not doing the cutting edge research that many men and women are doing in this field. My soapbox is awareness. And I'm just, if we could get people to understand what it is, and then we have to teach the teachers in PME so that they can pass it on. And I need to say, it's not just PME. Um, I teach a course at Harvard on women, peace and security, uh, but my students regularly tell me that they don't hear about it in most of their other international relations courses. So we need to raise awareness. We need to understand um, the breadth of the impact that ignoring gender equality, the vulnerability. I'll give you a great example. I like this example. A woman named uh, Joy Bulamski, a Canadian. She was at, uh, a black woman researcher at MIT. And she discovered that facial recognition software that was being used didn't recognize her face. Some black faces were recognized by the software as gorillas or other primates, but they didn't recognize her at all. And what she discovered was that artificial intelligence had been taught to recognize only a part of the facial structure spectrum and skin tones. So only about 12% of machine learning researchers are women and only a very small percentage of those are black. AI is only as good as those teaching it. Who codes matters. Now imagine if the national security community were using so uh, uh, artificial intelligence, this facial recognition software to find a bad guy <laughs> and it could only only see a very narrow portion of the spectrum. We need to have this inclusive diversity and gendered perspectives in new technology, um, in new technology like AI, in cyber, in space. Again, I left because I was beating my head against the wall. So it's, it's important that we understand what it is, how it's used, and what it can bring us. If you were to testify before Congress on this issue, this is sort of a follow-up question, uh, what would you advise Congress to to put into legislation to help us move forward in, in how we think about this from a foreign policy perspective? What, what, what are some of those key things that you think could be learned uh, by Congress that would support our engagement with the world on this on this area? Well, we already have the Women, Peace, and Security Act. 
we need to pay attention to our own policy. Sadly, um, it's not just security practitioners in the military and you know state or whatever that aren't really aware of women, peace and security. I've had the opportunity um, to be at functions with members of Congress. And I will just very casually say, so what do you think about the implementation of the Women, Peace and Security Act? And I'll get kind of a puzzled look and they'll say, remind me about that again. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, not, it's not on our radar. It's, it's still seen gender equality as seen as a nice thing to do but not a necessary thing to do. So it's very often used as a bargaining chip and left on the on the table in favor of real politic. Um, the United States did not insist on women at the negotiating table in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, we need to we need to have accountability. We need to have um, a budget that will support full implementation. Um, the Navy has certainly mandated that that women, peace, and security be implemented into PME education, and we have a women, peace, and security chair at the at the Naval War College who is building a program, but she needs support, she needs funding, um, and she needs the the faculty at the Naval War College and other PME institutions. Certainly, I would argue that the Navy is is kind of leading the way in PME, um, but at other PME institutions to be able to teach it. We, we teach, our faculty teach international relations, we teach economics, and we need to be able to incorporate this into core curriculum as well. And we again, we need accountability. I think one of the, one of the things that has always struck me about this issue of uh, gender differences, and if you look at uh, different cultures around the world, is that you've got a lot of cultures, a lot of countries that are very patriarchal, that they're basically sidelining over 50% of their population in the way that the economy can develop, uh, tapping into uh, very intelligent uh, young women and getting, giving them the education they need to be a part of you know, high technology, advanced science, and whatnot. Uh, is there any thoughts on your side about that? I mean, uh, the economics piece, I think, drives so many national security decisions. Uh, as we look around the world, as we look around these different military theaters, anything come to mind on that topic? Yeah, um, you know, self-interest drives policy implementation. <laughs> um, Saudi Arabia finally, in 2018, lifted the ban on women driving so that they could get women, more women employed and bring up and diversify um, their economy. And it's worked. They went from having 22% of women in the workforce to 30% after the driving ban was lifted. Um, now, again, that's not to say things have changed dramatically in other areas of, of the culture and of day-to-day -day life for women. But what drove that? Economics. The, you know, when, when oil began not to be a long-term economic plan, a sustainable long-term economic plan, they needed to get more women into the, into the workforce. And they couldn't do that if women had to pay male drivers or get male relatives to drive them to work. So it, it was very, 
very much economics driven to lift this ban. It wasn't a an epiphany of it's the right thing to do. And more and more, and I, I think that's what certainly I and, and all women peace and security advocates are trying to do is get people to understand um, the benefits um, beyond economics. The more that um, girls stay in school, um, the less likely they will marry early and end up with five or six kids before they're 23 and they're therefore never become part of um, have their own economic independence, which is critical for them individually, but not be part of the economic engine for their their community or their country. So, you know, all of this ties together. It's when I had my little personal epiphany um, by attending a women, peace and security conference that I had um, turned down an invitation to the year before because I thought, what can this teach me? I was very arrogant about I'm a woman in security. What do I, what can they teach me? I went, it connected the dots of my personal and professional life. And I, I, I always like to use an example. I heard somebody say once, um, refer to Neo in the Matrix. I don't know if you're a Matrix fan, but you know how Neo <laughs> could see the Matrix. He could see things that others can't. Well, once you see the connected dots of women, peace, and security, you can't unsee it. That's true. And you become an advocate. So uh, again, I think our a big first step is just raising awareness and getting it into education systems, both in civilian academia and in um, PME. Recognize that it is part of a security curriculum. It's not gender studies. It's not social justice. There are certainly aspects of that, but but this is about security. You know, it's interesting that you brought up Saudi Arabia. We had actually uh, the spokesperson for the uh, Royal Saudi Embassy in Washington, D.C. on the show a uh, month or so back, a couple months ago. And uh, he, he remarked on something that I didn't know about Saudi Arabia, but I do know about Iran. And that's something like 75, 80 percent of the population of both those countries uh, as under the age of 40. <laughs> I mean, there's been a population explosion in both those countries. And if we look to Iran, considering this topic of women, peace, and security, uh, there is a lot of activity happening in Iran right now uh, that was triggered by uh, the Iranian uh, security forces treatment of a woman. Uh, yeah. you, you, can you say more about that topic? Yeah, um, it, people taking to uh, young people taking to the streets over a woman being killed for not properly wearing her hijab, um, I think says a lot about what a very educated population, young population, is willing or unwilling to tolerate any longer. So I think um, we are, and these are people who are taking to the streets at risk to their their own safety and their lives very much so uh, and and kudos to them um i think we're go as in saudi arabia it uh when when the government of iran sees it in their self-interest to um when they can no longer tamp down internal unrest through security forces change will happen, but it's going to be very slow because nobody 
nobody willingly gives up power. The clerics are not going to say, gosh, we were wrong. You know, um, there is something called social dominance orientation that when people are in a position where they're getting advantages, they're not going to give it up easily. And I think that's what we're that's what is being faced in the country now. Yeah, there were there were some uh, really outstanding protests by women in Saudi Arabia that uh, convinced uh, Mohammed bin Salman to to enact those changes. Uh, the uh, ayatollahs in uh, Iran are facing the same challenge from a very strong resistance movement led by women predominantly in Iran today, and we have no idea how that's going to turn out. We saw the same thing in Liberia. Yeah. It was women in the streets. So yes, um, women make a difference. Yep. Uh, Dr. Johnson Fries, I always try to give my guests sort of the final word on this show. We have uh, only about three minutes remaining. Uh, what thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners on this topic of women in, in potential or actual conflict zones or women peace and security studies more broadly? Um, well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for having me on because, as I said, my my soapbox is awareness. And if I raised awareness among anyone today that they're going to look further into women, peace and security, I, I'm very happy about that. I would um, encourage your students, I would encourage college students, again, those who are in international relations courses, whether it's undergraduate or graduate, if you're in a class where you're talking international relations and you're talking states and sovereignty and religion and economics, but nobody brings up gender, ask why. Ask why and maybe point out what a difference gender has made. Again, um, the statistics are there. There is a, a book by um, a woman named Valerie Hudson and her co-authors called The First Political Order, which gives all kinds of statistics on what, what a difference gender equality makes. Um, there are very few facts in social science, kind of the, the world is round type facts, <laughs> but there's a lot of consensus around the difference that gender equality makes. And I, I hope that we're going to start paying attention at both the college level, the military education level, at the policymaking level. We all, we all just need to um, insist on it. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our show today. Uh, Dr. Joan johnson Fries. thank you so much for joining us for this hour. Are, are there any resources you'd highlight for our listeners if they want to dive in to learn more about this topic, websites or uh, things like that? Um, well, again, I when I started teaching, there was no survey book. There was no introductory book. So I wrote Women, Peace, and Security, an introduction, which is a survey text. I'm doing the second edition right now. Um, the first political order that I mentioned, um, there, there's lots of readers, but you kind of have to know a little bit about the subject first. So I encourage people to um, just start by learning the basics. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Joan johnson Fries, for your time today. Thank you. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit, Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, 
for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.